Hi, and welcome to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. My name is Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad. And these are my responses to a recent debate between Mr. Mitch Kaneup and Mr. Nathan Cravat, moderated by Mr. Cody Zorn, on the King James Bible and the King James Version only position. In the first part, I will cover the actual debate between the two gentlemen. In the next part, I'll cover the Q&A. As an atheist, I have no dog in this fight. But as a former charismatic fundamentalist, I do have opinions. This response isn't a point-by-point, sentence-by-sentence refutation. I simply don't have the depth of knowledge to do that. And... Other people more experienced and more qualified than me already have. These responses are simply my responses to the points that I want to respond to. There are two pressing points that I am reminded of as I listen to each speaker. Point one. No one owns Christianity. And this is because Christianity is simply a collection of beliefs based around belief in a deity described in a book. Some forms of Christianity add to the book. Some add extra books. Some have really weird doctrines like symbolic underwear or symbolic cannibalism or a pantheon of saints. But it all comes under the umbrella of Christianity. The reality is, anyone can make their own Christian sect, and while they may be unorthodox and heretical, and opposed to any of the Nicene and or Apostles' creeds, you can't deny that as long as they in some aspect acknowledge belief in God, and in the divinity of Jesus Christ, they're Christian. And this is a fact. And number two. This whole debate is like listening to two grown men argue about whose conspiracy theory is more true. The fact? No one in Christianity can prove the supernatural aspects that they believe about the faith. Christians can believe all they want. They can argue books at 20 paces all they want. They can accuse the other person of heresy and of being judgmental all day long. But until someone can prove the existence of the supernatural being that supposedly preserved the texts, I may as well listen to a flat earther argue with an Illuminati conspiracy theorist. My summary of the debate? I've always considered King James Version onlyism to be an illogical and untestable doctrinal stance with very little historical basis that exposes the hypocrisy of those who hold to it. And nothing highlights this more than the liberal slandering of theological enemies, despite their redeeming qualities, while steadfastly protecting those who it sees as heroes, no matter their flaws. And Mitch Knupp personifies this repeatedly throughout the debate. 
Nathan Cravat, while being much more generous and kind-spirited, suffers from the fact that he has bought into the book Hook, Line and Sinker. However, I see his position as much more reasoned. Though, this isn't saying much when your opponent says things like Hebrew is the closest language we have to English. With these criticisms, I'm not trying to malign people. What I am trying to do is provide criticism of bad ideas and of bad arguments that those people have made, as well as of the undercurrents of thought that props up those arguments. Truth be told, if I met either Mitch or Nathan online, as unlikely as that will be with Mitch, or on the street, I would be more than cordial and polite. I'm not one of those angry atheists who thinks it's a great idea to throw rotten eggs on people who think differently to me. I'd much rather be your friend, so I can be there to help you process questions you have if you ever feel that the other side of the equation is starting to make sense. Besides, I've never seen anyone who was ever convinced of the merits of an argument by force or abuse. So, having said all that, truth be told, after listening to both sides, I ended up being much more critical of Knupp's position because, from as neutral a stance I can take on this issue, I think his position is a lot more untenable and that a lot of his statements are just straight out face-palmingly bad. If Knupp or anyone of his choosing has a problem with that and wants to argue that with me, I'd be more than happy to have that conversation with them. But Cravat doesn't escape criticism either. But most of my criticism of his position comes down to do with the fact that Christianity is a collection of beliefs around a book, rather than the will and testament of a deity. Neither he nor anyone else can prove that the God of the Bible exists. Nathan, in his 45 years, hasn't done any better than what the body collective of Christianity in the last 2,000 years has been able to do in regards to coming up with a valid and sound case that doesn't rely on butchered philosophy or on the circular reality that to prove that God exists, you already have to believe that God exists. Whereas Knupp, I am critical of both his theology as well as of his points of view on history and cross-faith dialogue. Furthermore, Knupp didn't look like he was there to debate. He was there to preach, and the validation of his arguments came not from the strength of his comparative case, but from the whooping and hollering from the crowd, a crowd that was clearly partisan. If you took the entirety of Mitch's speeches and spliced them together, it would be indistinguishable from a sermon. And preaching a sermon is not how you win a debate. Saitem Brugenkate found that out the hard way when he went against Matt Dillahunty. 
Damien, the tall, friendly atheist dad. I hope you're having a great day, and welcome to the Tall, Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Did you know you can now support the podcast on Patreon? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash TFADpod, where your monthly donations will help support what I do in producing enjoyable and thought-provoking material. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. My name is Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad. And these are my responses to a recent debate between Mr. Mitch Kaneup and Mr. Nathan Cravat, moderated by Mr. Cody Zorn, on the King James Bible and the King James Version only position. Before the actual debate started, I noted a few things. The singing of Stand Up For Jesus. I simply had to sing along. It was very old-timey and reminded me of when I was a young Christian in a Lutheran church, surrounded by middle-aged and elderly folk with only an organ playing. I've come to learn that you can tell you're in an old-timey church because everyone is wearing suits and there are no drums. Nathan was a fish out of water. He was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Part of me says, good on him, and part of me says, I don't think it was a good look. I thought Cody Zorn did an alright job of moderating, though I know some of my friends on Twitter have subsequently criticised him. I would suspect from his appearance that he was KJV only friendly, but from his moderation of the debate... I wouldn't accuse him of such. His preamble where he'd said, to say, Now, having said that, this is not a, a presidential debate where we stand up and say, we don't want the audience saying anything. I don't believe that. If Brother Nathan says something you agree with, a good hearty amen or an applause, I have absolutely no problem with that. Brother Mitch says something you like, a good amen, we are still in a Baptist church, a good amen, a good applause, whatever, I'm fine with that. But, listen to this, listen to my caveat. We will not hear any voices of dissent today in this place. If either one of these men says something you don't agree with or you don't like, it is not your prerogative to holler something out, call something out, say, ah, oh, that's crazy, ah, oh, I don't like that, ah, oh, you're nuts. We're not having that. 
I'm going to sit right over there. You'll get one warning. One. And after that, we got some big fellas in this place that will kindly escort you out, and you'll be asked to leave. Okay? So I'm, I'm just, I, I, this, this is the roughest that the debate might get right here. I just want to lay these ground rules so everybody is on the same page. All right? So this is what we're going to do this afternoon. Though I don't know if being threatened to be escorted by big burly guys is keeping in the spirit of Christ. But he never had to warn anyone. So, all good. Now, I'll go through some points made in the debate. Some short, some long, but in sequential order. I believe in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament that they're inspired verbally and plenary. I believe in the inerrant, infallible words of God. I believe that Scripture is the very Word of God. Scripture is our final authority in faith and in practice. Already, this shows a willingness to ignore history. Who decided that the Apocrypha was no longer inspired? History shows that the Apocrypha was part of the standard canon up until at least the 1500s. Even in the KJV, the Apocrypha was part of the canon up until the 1820s. So I find it interesting that Christians stand there and thump the pulpit and say, I love these 66 books, but, and this is my cynical opinion, they say that because the people they are beholden to tell them that it was these 66 books that were inspired and Definitely not the others, no. I've never seen any hard data or any method of how someone determined that the standard canon is the one we should be accepting to the exclusion of everything else. You see, if it comes down to humans to determine what classifies as divine inspiration, then it's more like second-hand inspiration. We, in these modern times, are taking it as an article of faith that the early church fathers got it right. And if we're relying on second-hand inspiration for our doctrine about the most powerful being in the universe, we need something more solid than a fuzzy in the tumblies and a correct Greek word here and there. So I find the jettisoning of the Apocrypha kind of worrying because it shows a willingness to ignore history. Scripture is the primary, is primarily the self-revelation of God. Every time we open the Bible, that's the first thing. This is God revealing himself to me and I want to learn more about God and love him more. This then means that God has revealed that he's okay with situations and circumstances where children are killed for the crimes of their parents, with women being considered property, and with the idea that the earth is flat and surrounded by a dome. Yes, I am being controversial and inflammatory, but these are all positions that I believe have solid scriptural backing and I will argue anyone under the table about them. 
I believe man is made in God's image. I believe in the fall of mankind into sin. I believe we are separated from God and are depraved, wretched, and deserving of God's wrath in our natural lost state. I believe in an actual, eternal heaven and hell. Here, I think Nathan rattled off a whole laundry list of doctrines to gain faith and good standing with his audience, sort of like to prove his bona fides. It's a shame that a fundamentalist has to prove to a fundamentalist church that, yes, I am a Christian, and the only difference between you and I is that we differ on one point of doctrine. And this is because KJV-onlyism is a very us-against-them doctrine. And the doctrines of the church are not in flux. They are settled, and they can be proven clearly from the body of Scripture, rightly interpreted. Spoken like a person who is jettisoning the history and the rich tapestry of competition of beliefs that have been part of the body of Christianity since its inception. But remember, Nathan isn't a liberal or a moderate up against a fundamentalist. Nathan is a fundamentalist who is debating against an extreme fundamentalist. By J. Gresham Machen, William Whitsett, and came over here in our seminaries from Erlangen and Chor and Stuttgart and Berlin, and came over to this country and started corrupting our universities, many of them that were built upon Baptist principles. There were several men in this country that were disturbed. These men had already dumped the King James Bible as their authority. So these men were disturbed because German rationalism, which, believe, which teaches that the authority is the reasoning of men and not divine revelation. And that came from Germany, and I can hit on the Germans because that's my ancestry. Knup is German. That's where I came from, where my people came from. But Germany, German people have always been heady. And every text that's been corrupted... Every text that's been corrupted and is prevalent in the modern versions has been messed with by some German rationalist somewhere down the line. Old and New Testament. He may be right that German people have been heady, which I take to mean strong-willed, but he can't also argue against the fact that Protestantism and numerous streams of Christian thought also come from German schools. He hasn't yet provided any evidence of any actual textual corruption. He provides evidence of textual variations that don't fit his theology, but that's not the same as corruption. The Protestants, and I'm not a Protestant either, I'm a Baptist. Baptists have never been Protestants. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Oh, boy. But they were going to agree on seven doctrines so they could all, we got Methodists here under James Hall Brooks, which is C.I. Schofield's teacher. You had William Erdman here. You had Stephen Ting, who was Episcopalian here. You had L.W. Munhall, which was Methodist here. You had Adoniram Judson Gordon, which was a Baptist here. And they wanted to get together and combat German rationalism instead of believing this book, what they did. 
as they agreed on five doctrines, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the depravity of man, eternal hell, the virgin birth, and resurrection of the dead. And if you believe those five doctrines, then you had fellowship. Hey, you Baptist folks, something missing there? Point one, proved. This all comes down to the fact that no one owns Christianity. But who is Mitch Knupp to say what correct Christianity is? What he can say is what orthodox Christianity is, but he can't say what correct Christianity is. But not believing the extra doctrines doesn't make you not a Christian. It's not like you have to fill out a form when you become a Christian. The very basic of Christianity is that you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Anything else is just details. And I don't remember reading about a doctrine check when you get to heaven. And, for example, the Mormons are Christians. Just a very unorthodox sect of Christianity. That I don't have a right to take this brother or these brethren and anybody else here and shoot you or cut you or stab you or cut your throat because we don't agree. Baptists have never, ever, ever persecuted anybody for the cause of Christ. Baptists have been persecuted by Rome. They have been persecuted by Protestants. Amen. But Baptists have never persecuted anybody. Those five doctrines they agreed on, are you ready for this? They called fundamentals. That doesn't make their doctrine correct. You can be right, but still be a jerk. For example, look at people like Hans Geiger or Werner von Braun, famous scientists who collaborated with the Nazis. Uh, Our question number one is this. Gentlemen, do we have a perfect Bible in our hands today? If so, where is it? And if not, why? No. Simply because perfect is a relative measure or a relative term. And you're not really telling me perfect relative to what? Is the Bible free from factual errors? No. Free from contradictions? No. Is the Bible perfect for salvation? Well, you would need to get some empirical data to determine what salvation is, how we know we have it, whether anybody can be saved aside from the Bible, all that kind of stuff. The only thing the Bible is perfect in is spelling. Plus, You're not telling me what Bible, the NIV, the KJV, the Texas Receptus, the Bible with the Apocrypha, the Bible without the Apocrypha, etc., etc. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul writing tells Timothy that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. And then he talks about his mother and his grandmother Lois that had the scriptures just like Timothy had. In 2 Timothy 3, the rest of the chapter says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 
The word scripture or scriptures is rendered 53 times in your King James Bible. The standard teaching in most Bible colleges is that 2 Timothy 3, 15 to, to uh, 8 or 17, referring to the original manuscripts. I can hit on Bible college. I've taught in eight different ones. So, uh, but I'm telling you what they teach. Some long-tenured Greek professors teaching that that's the original manuscripts. How did Timothy have the original manuscripts? Right. And right. his mother and his grandmother have them. Right. Every time, listen, no exceptions. Exceptions disprove a rule. They don't overthrow a rule. But in this case right here, all 53 times in your Bible, every time the word scripture or scriptures is alluded to, rendered, it's copies of scriptures that somebody had in their hand that were not the original manuscript. The original manuscripts perished many, many years ago. His point is that when they mention scripture, they meant the copies, not the originals. Therefore, they can't be talking about the originals. The original languages may not exist, but this doesn't mean we can't know what they were trying to say. The original English doesn't exist anymore, but if we got a document from the 1200s, we would be able to work out what they're trying to say. Dr. Josh Bowen from Digital Hammurabi runs a course on how to read Akkadian. No one natively speaks Akkadian today, but a qualified expert can read a cuneiform text and work out what it's saying. And even if they are copies of copies, does that mean they're not trying to convey what they believe the original was trying to say, or should say? You say why? Because God gave you a Bible. Greek, only 2% of the world spoke Greek. Only 1% of the world ever spoke Hebrew at any time in the history of man. But nearly 90% of the world speaks English. If God is going to give a Bible, he's going to give it in the English language. Some problems with this doctrine. Then why not inspire the original Bible authors to speak English before it was ever invented? Or why not just wait until English is invented before canonizing the Bible? If the canonization can wait a couple of hundred years after Christ, then why not just wait until English becomes the worldwide language to get that Bible out? Why wait for a language to be invented for people to hang their hats on? The claim that 90% of the world speaks English doesn't quite stack up either. Maybe 90% of the world is exposed to English or has a rudimentary understanding of English, but that doesn't mean fluency. And by that logic, God should create an inerrant Chinese Bible, since Chinese has well over a billion speakers, and China is becoming more and more powerful. 
Because if he gives it only in Greek and Hebrew, only those who profess to know Greek and Hebrew, and they don't tell you which Greek, there's 24 Greek texts extant today, which ones are right and which ones are wrong. So, so if we don't have the original Greek and you don't even have the original work that the King James translators used. Good question. But what are you measuring correctness against? But yeah, um, by that logic, we can throw out the whole Bible and every single scripture. The KJV is based off of other texts. From 1604 to 1611, all of that but six pieces burn up in the Great Fire of London in 1666. So it sounds like to me God's testing our faith in these last days. Is he a liar or not? He said the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them, them, them. Not him like the modern versions say. Them seven times. If I had a dollar... For every time I heard someone say, these are the last days, I could retire now. It seems like these last days have lasted for at least a few hundred years. You can't say last days if there's been over 50,000 of them. And does God need to burn up all the reference texts to test our faith? English went through a stage of perfection from the time that English was rendered as a language. English has been evolving and morphing and changing since its inception. People say, I don't like the King James Bible because of that old English. This book's not old English. Old English is from 600 to 1100 A.D. Middle English from 1100 to 1450 A.D. Modern English is from 1450, bless your heart, to now. Not quite. Middle English became early Modern English, Scottish and Irish. Early Modern English then became Modern English at about 1750. And even then, if you took someone from 1750 and dropped them into now, they would have little idea of our speech and us of theirs. You know what the problem is? We don't speak English anymore. We speak American. Uh, face palm? And so we have American translations. The works of Shakespeare took up 20,000 to 30,000 words. This King James Bible incorporates little under 10,000 words. The average English-speaking person in England in 1600 had a two to 3,000 word vocabulary. Today, the average American has a 900 word vocabulary. You think God's going to put a Bible in an English language, an American language? I don't, th- I don't think so. You say, well, I just don't understand it. You've got to have the Holy Spirit to be able to understand it. And I'm not saying any, any of you folks are not saved, but I'm saying the Bible is only understood by the discernment of the Holy Spirit of God, and He's inside. And if you're here today, and the Holy Spirit of God is not inside of you, you are not saved. His implication is that the average American is so stupid 
that they need divine intervention to understand the Bible. Is the average American so stupid they can't understand a Bible without divine guidance? Then what about the British, the Canadians, and the Australians? We have the KJV as well. So, I contend today that God kept his promise. We're in the last generation. There ain't going to be another one. Bloody hell. Again, if I had a dollar for every time someone said these are the last days, Christ is coming soon, this is the last generation, all of the gospel prophecies are pointing to now, yeah, I'd retire. And I'll explain more of that later. The King James only position often substitutes a translation for the originals from which they were translated. Autographs and translations are not the same thing. Switching the terms is a sleight of hand and is dishonest. In much the same way that modern Christians take words spoken by a Jew in Roman Palestine to Roman Jews to make them apply to themselves in the year 2021. Those who teach versionism are on the fringes of historic Orthodox Christianity. King James Version Onlyism is a new doctrine that was popularized by Seventh-day Adventists in 1930. And I'm talking about the independent fundamental Baptist that I was raised with where we were influenced. And it was plagiarized by a fundamentalist in 1955. The trail goes from Benjamin Wilkinson to J.J. Ray to David Otis Fuller to Peter Ruckman, who I knew personally, Edward Hills, D.A. Waite. Gail Replinger, Ripplinger, and to Brother Mitch today. Bringing Bergen into the discussion is pointless because he couldn't even be a member of the Dean Bergen Society, and my opponent does not regard him or the Dean Bergen Society as Bible believers. Quite possible. In my former Christian walk, faith was more to do with what you believed God wanted rather than which version. King James Version onlyism seems to be a reactionary stance. And having said that, speaking in tongues is a relatively new phenomenon as well. But nobody has a right to create new Christian doctrines. Doctrines are settled once for all from the time of the apostles. Every doctrine I mentioned in my statement of faith comes directly from the scripture and has been a doctrine since the apostles taught them. They can be traced throughout church history. So on what authority do you claim that a single version was raised to the final standard of scripture after 17 centuries of church history? A look at the history of the church would say that's wrong. And again, point one, no one owns Christianity. Because no one owns Christianity, you can't say what correct Christianity is. You can say what orthodox Christianity is, but not correct Christianity. In his podcast, Mitch starts with geography and makes the case that three cities have characteristics which are set in stone and cannot be changed, but he leaves out so many historic facts and figures that do not support his case. He said in episode one that it takes a coward then or now to slander a man after he's dead and a man can't defend himself. Yet Mitch goes on throughout the rest of the episodes to attack multiple church fathers, Bible translations, reformers, fundamentalists, and those who hold to the majority text and TR only positions. He plays fast and loose with church history. And that's very concerning to me 
He's not consistent. And inconsistency reveals a poor argument. Leaving out facts reveals fear. He's not willing to hold the King James Version to the same standard by which he berates other faithful versions. I'm sorry, but conspiracy theories, numerology, even if you call it numerics, out-of-context teaching, disregard for authorial intent, symbolism, topology, dishonest and faulty logic will never convince me, and it should not convince you of the King James Version-only position. Nathan makes a good point that King James Version-onlyism attacks a lot of other people for their doctrine, while saying that it's not right to attack a man while they can't defend themselves. Jesus possessed the incommunicable attributes of deity, his aseity or self-existence in John 5.26, his immutability in Hebrews 13, eternality in Micah 5.2, Isaiah 9.6, John 1, 1 through 2, Hebrews 7.3, Colossians 1.15, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Colossians 2, 9 through 10, and Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. Two of those verses, Micah 5.2 and Isaiah 9.6, are misquotations of the Old Testament. Those verses weren't about Jesus. And any sober study of the context those texts were written in would show that. You could do a podcast on this doctrine for decades and never run out of clear, in-context Bible verses to serve as the foundation of this doctrine. No. To even reach the conclusion that Jesus is God's Son you have to pull numerous Old Testament verses out of their original Hebrew context and then mishmash select New Testament passages. For example, in Mark, Jesus was never God's son until he was adopted. My dear brother keeps saying the originals, the original. He don't have the originals. Neither does anybody else. Finally, someone honest enough to admit that modern theology is behind the eight ball. However, having said that, I think we can make reasonable approximations from the body of available scripture as to what the orthodoxy of belief was. So in reality, we can't ever know with absolute certainty what the original OG Jewish scriptures were saying. We have to go from our best approximation from the body of available texts and commentaries. And Christianity likes to think that they are the orthodoxy. Many of your Bible colleges around this country are using Thayer's lexicon, Greek lexicon, to overthrow the authority of your King James Bible. And Thayer, according to Baker's book publication of his work, didn't believe in the blood atonement, the deity of Christ. He didn't believe the inspiration of the scripture. Why do you want to convert uh, or consort a lost man for authority on your Bible? Wilhelm Jacinius, who was a German rationalist, it was responsible for the Hebrew definitions. All Hebrew work in those days, in Strong's Concordance, was a German rationalist. Didn't even believe in the deity of Christ, the blood atonement. Neither did any other German rationalist. Why do you want to consult a source that blasphemes your Bible? So what if Thayer didn't believe the same things you did? Does that detract from the quality or the soundness of his work? Maybe Thayer is reading things correctly and you're not. 
maybe the fact that he doesn't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible means he's not twisting scripture to fit inerrancy. And just because he doesn't believe the exact same things you do doesn't make him lost. This is an ad hominem. Same for his criticism of Wilhelm Jesenius. Maybe that's why the German rationalists were rationalists. Because they didn't let their theology get to their head. Do you want the uncomfortable truth or the comfortable lie? Both men sound like they want the comfortable lie. It's just that one of them is less pig-headed about it. See my second point at the start of this response. If they had the originals, you folks couldn't read them, most of you. Do you know Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic? Do you? Well, then you've got to depend upon somebody to tell you what it means, just like a Catholic has to depend upon a priest to interpret the scripture for him. You see, I'm a preacher. I'm not only a Bible teacher. Yes, this is what translation is. It takes a document from one language and makes it available to readers in other languages. For example, I've never read the Gulag Archipelago in its original language. I have to rely on someone to translate the Russian for me. And besides, if you're picking and choosing who you trust based on their theology, rather than soundness and correctness of their work, you're playing a very biased game. Let me tell you something, folks. When you get down to read your Bible, and you say, now, Lord, I got a King James Bible here, but I know it's full of mistakes, and I know it's full of mistranslations and interpolations and iticisms and glosses and emendations to the text, but if you could possibly show me something in the Bible, please do. You think God's going to fool with you five seconds? Yes, but that argument can be made about the texts we have now. Professor Bart Ehrman wrote multiple books and one literally called The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, showing how even the most basal texts are full of mistakes and interpolations and all that. But if you go down like I do, and like so many of us do, and get down and say, Lord, I don't, I don't understand everything in this book. But you said you'd preserve it to every generation. I'm in an English generation. I don't remember God ever saying that or a verse in the Bible that says that. That must be in 3 Corinthians or something. You say, Brother Mitch, how do you explain all these churches growing so big on these modern versions? You're going to use that as a, a means of success? Well, you better, you better just thank God for Islam. You better thank God for Jehovah Witness and Mormons and Roman Catholics because they're growing by leaps and bounds. Finally, someone who gets it. You don't need good theology to have a big church. And besides, argumentum ad populum is not a good argument for the correctness of your scripture. And the more God binds those bundles together to be burned in the ecumenical movement, and he's doing it through Rome, and what scares me to death is you people that have adopted these modern versions are adopting versions that have come from Roman Catholic texts that's leading right back to Rome with the Pope on the throne. 
And you better hope you know the God of this Bible, because if you don't, you're going to be left here in the tribulation period. Why all the anti-Catholic hatred? If you all worship the one God, then all of the extraneous details shouldn't matter. It's like Mitch Knupp has read the mind of God, and he knows exactly what is needed for salvation. Believe only the correct version of the book, otherwise you're going to hell. And I've never found a mistake in this book, and everything that seems to be a mistake is in your mind. Oh boy, facepalm. But, if he doesn't have the originals, how does he know what is and isn't a mistake? Maths textbooks don't have mistakes. Does that imply divine origin? And let me tell you something. You believe God saved you? Do you believe he can keep you? I mean, Mary lost Jesus in Luke chapter 2 and couldn't find him for three days. If I was dependent on Mary to get me to heaven, I'd be in bad shape. She lost the Son of God and couldn't find him. Mary didn't lose Jesus, and Mary wasn't trying to get Jesus to heaven, so the point doesn't quite stick. Mary didn't lose Jesus. Jesus snuck off to the temple to be with his real dad. And notice the three-day motif? Luke is using a mirror. In the beginning, Mary loses Jesus for three days because Jesus was with his father and then gets him back. And at the end of the story, Mary loses Jesus for three days because he was with his father and then gets him back. Translation must involve meaning. I thank God for his words, but they communicate meaning. Words are different from one language to another. True. Any translation especially when you're trying to convey deep theological concepts, is prone to error. If you go word for word, you lose the spirit of the text. If you go by the spirit, it then opens up to playing fast and loose with what you think the text is trying to say. Unless there is a clear understanding of what the text is trying to say. But then, you have to make sure that what is being communicated is being understood by your target audience. The problem is that the Bible's target audience keeps changing. Back in 300, the target audience was ancient Romans trying to eke out an existence. In 1000, it was Europeans trying to kill each other. In 1800, it was people fleeing religious persecution and the beginnings of the Four Great Awakenings. In the 2000s, it is a highly literate and a scientifically aware culture. The texts of the 300s will have lost their flavour by the time it gets to the 2000s. Having many translations is a good thing, especially when you want to get a totality of historic Christian thought. You can't stick your head in the KJV sand and pretend that you know what God is thinking 
and that you're reading the words on your page as if you're reading the original scrolls back in ancient Israel. The other thing to note is that Christianity hasn't always been this warm, fuzzy, feel-good force for good in society. And the texts and the mentality behind why they created the text the way they are is important if you want to know the history of Christian thought. If you want to know the history. If you don't, go ahead. Stick your head in the fundamentalist sand. It seems that fundamentalists don't give two hoots about what happened in ancient times. To them, Christian history is this. Jesus died and went to heaven. The Bible got made. A whole lot of people tried to corrupt God's word for 2,000 years. The Bible we have today is God's inerrant message, and that's all I have to say about that. Because fundamentalists have a bad habit of picking and choosing which historic sources they want to pay attention to. Most modern fundamentalists don't give two hoots about what the proto-Orthodox Church Fathers said on a wide variety of topics. Yet, when one of the proto-Orthodox Church Fathers says something they agree with, hey, here's a fount of wisdom. You can't have it both ways, guys. It could mean one or all of these things. The original autographs, which we do not have. Nobody even claims to have that. Nobody claims that that is their standard. Never heard anyone claim that. As a matter of fact, the skeptics always claim that. Any honest skeptic will concede that not having the originals is not a killer blow for the text. But it is a hammer blow with regards to divine inerrancy. You can't claim that God's word has been faithfully preserved down the generations and not have the beginning text to back the claim up. You can claim that what we have today is close, or at least a reasonable approximation to what we think the original texts were. But if a perfect God wanted to perfectly preserve his perfect word, he would find a way better than the messy processes that humans have taken millennia to finally develop. A divine webdav system would have been great. The invention of the printing press would have also gone a long way to preserving those texts. But as it turns out, God didn't come up with the printing press. It was a Chinese. Also, claiming God's word has been faithfully preserved down the generations is presuming that you know what God is saying and thinking. You don't. You have a book and you have a church. Take those two away. All you have left is fumbling in the dark. There are bad translations. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. The Passion, the New World, many, many, many more. I agree. Some of the modern translations are essentially pop culture mass market rubbish. To me, the message is one of the worst translations out there. But I believe you can prove, as Brother Mitch just said, that God will preserve his word by sheer logic. I do not believe that we should 
twist Scripture to prove it. Context matters. And I want to say God has preserved His Word. How? How has He preserved His Word? It's interesting the Bible does not tell us that. God will preserve His words of the Bible. Why? The Bible is the Word of God. And where does it say that? In the Bible. It's not sheer logic. It's more circular logic. To see how he did it. You must take leaps in logic to land on the King James Version only position. Honestly, I believe the King James Version only position of preservation is a very weak view of preservation. Why? Because to switch the standard in the 17th century exposes a belief that something is wrong with the original standard. Uh, Yes, because as I said before, the Bible's target audience keeps changing. And this highlights point one at the start. No one owns Christianity. It's a collection of beliefs. My standard has never switched. It has always, throughout all time, since the writing of the autographs, been that the originals were passed down faithfully through copies of copies of copies. I believe that God has preserved his word through copies of copies, being faithfully and accurately transcribed through the centuries. I think an even better standard would be to work above and beyond human measures and get the originals. Because the vast majority of ancient texts survive only in copies. But if God wanted to do better than what humans can come up with, he would have preserved the absolute originals. According to the King James Version only position, the original standard is lost. And you've got to mix in all sorts of conspiracy theories to make that work. You can't go to texts of Scripture to prove it. If God couldn't or didn't preserve the original standard, why would we believe he could preserve a plan B? And this comes to point two from the start. You can't even prove God exists, let alone that he inspired people to write certain things down. We don't have faith in faith. Like hell you don't. You may not buy my arguments of preservation, but please stop saying I'm not a Bible believer. Fundies can be so judgmental sometimes. It's interesting that he brings up the point about King James, that poor man's been maligned more than anybody except the Virgin Mary and the Apostle Peter. The problem here is that Knupp straight away speaks as if Nathan was maligning the character of King James himself. Nathan wasn't. All that Nathan said was that King James acknowledged that he was paraphrasing certain books, especially Revelation. I think it's interesting that King James translated the Psalms himself. And he paraphrased Revelation. And they don't match the King James Version. Though I couldn't find any evidence for that claim. King James is looked at by the detractors of the King James Bible as a pervert, a sodomite. Uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but Jamestown was named after James in 1607. Do you think people in 1607 are going to name a city after a man who was a pervert? No, sir. His son Charles, Charles I, who became king after James and was king until he was executed in 1649. North and South Carolina are named after King Charles. Carolus, Latin, Carolus. That's where Carolina came from. Do you think people 
are going to name two states after a man who was a pervert because Charles was looked at as the same. The question is, what Bible available today are the words of God or the closest to them? I don't need a rant about what is named after who and their lifestyles. No, I'm asking you folks. Uh, see, what, what, is, what has happened to people today, they have become internet believers instead of Bible believers. I don't even have the internet. I don't even have a smartphone. I don't even have access to the internet unless I go to the library. I don't want the internet. You don't have internet? I don't doubt that for a second. The internet is where religions go to die. Staying off the internet is how you keep your head in the fundamentalist sand. It's lucky Mitch doesn't have Twitter, because he'd be in Twitmo faster than you can say freedom of speech. But yet James was accused. You know why he was accused? Because when King James came from Scotland and came to England, it was five men set on Elizabeth's court that he dismissed because of their disloyalty. They said, we'll get even. So the main perpetrator was Anthony Weldon. He told his son, he said, I've written some things concerning James. I don't want this to be published till I'm dead. You listening? King James died in 1625. His son Charles executed in 1649. Anthony Weldon died in 1649. In 1650, his son published the work that said that James was a pervert and a sodomite. That is a dead man's legacy. That's been tainted. Yet King James Version only people have absolutely no problem tainting the legacy of other people. Alive or dead. These modern versions, Westcott, Hort, what you're doing with these modern versions, you're advocating those men. Those men hated America. Those men, their own sons said those men were pro-Roman Catholic. Those men were evolutionists. Those men were drunkards. Those men did not, did not believe the Bible. I'm not sure what accepting the theory of evolution has to do with the price of fish. And way to ad hominem people. The battle should be on how correct their translation is and how we can know that the Bible we have is the correct translation. This is but one instance where Mitch has no problems maligning people for either their lifestyles, beliefs, theology, political persuasion, whatever category on his laundry list of things to malign people for. But as soon as you criticise King James, not even personally, but on a point that King James admitted to himself, oh no, he's one of the most maligned men in history. The New King James Version was a bridge Bible that bridged a bridge to the modern, other modern versions, like the English Standard Version, which by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but this English Standard Version here was derived from the 1971 edition of the Revised Standard Version, one of the most openly communistic National Council of Churches, World Council of Churches translation. This thing right here came from it with every translator a Calvinist. So, you're proving point one above. No one owns Christianity. 
Was he who manifest in the flesh or was God manifest in the flesh? You say, well, it's in other places. Well, let's go down to Charlotte down here and let's stand at one of them busy intersections. And let me say, I don't need that stoplight because we got one here. I don't need this stoplight because we got one here. I don't need this stoplight over here because we got one down here. When you start taking words out of the Bible, when you start destroying doctrines and saying, well, it's in other places. Compelling at first, but when you think about it, even if you removed every single stoplight on the street, this would not disprove the existence of the government that put them up in the first place. So, even if you removed every single reference to Jesus being God, this gets you both no closer to and no further away from proving the existence of God himself. It's like arguing that Santa Claus wears a green jacket instead of a red one. And this goes to point two from the start. The King James translators were revising the Bishop's Bible. That's important to know. Read the rules given by King James and Richard Bancroft. They were to stay as closely to the bishops as possible. The King James translators also had the Erasmus texts, multiple, the Complutensian Polyglot, Beza, Stephanos, which is not the same, they had Tyndale, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, Richard Tavner's, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible. The translators also had the Catholic readings, the Dewey Reims, and the 50, 1580, the Latin Vulgate. None of these matched exactly. At no stage did Nathan answer the question, which Bible is closest to God's word? I think he did a good job of highlighting that the KJV is based on other translations, just like every other translation is. But none of this tells me how we know what God's word is God's word. King James onlyism is not a historic orthodox view of the church. And just like Pentecostal speaking in tongues, the Toronto Blessing, Infant Baptism, etc., etc. The chapter and verse numberings from the Old Testament was put in there in 1229 by Stephen Langton. They weren't the original Hebrew or Aramaic. The chapter and verse numberings in your New Testament was put in there by Robert Stephanus, who was also Robert Estian, who was also Robert Stevens. Depends on where he was, where he was traveling. He put from Lyon, France to Paris, France, the chapter and verse numberings in your New Testament, in your Bible. Amen? I read over in the book of Luke. I read over there where God said about the Jew, because you didn't know the time of your visitation, he said, I'm going to fence you in on every side. He said, I'm going to dig a trench about thee. Amen? Everybody that reads that passage of scripture knows that doctrinally that's dealing with the second advent. But it also has a historical reference to when Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. But you know those things didn't happen? When did those things happen to the Jew? They happened with Hitler. And Warsaw. And Krakow where he put 114,000 Jews in a, in, a, in a square mile area there and closed them in. Amen? And then he dug trenches with bulldozers and pushed the Jews into bulldozers. When did that happen? 
1943, 1944. Look at your Bible, folks. That's exactly Luke chapter 19, 41, 42, 43, and 44 is where you'll find that in your Bible. How did Luke know that in 33 AD? This book's a miracle, folks. You can accept it or reject it or do what you want to. This line, to me, exposes the blatant anti-Semitism that lies at the heart of some fundamentalist streams of thought in Christian theology. It was already clear that Mitch is anti-Catholic, but this line, where he basically says that the Jews deserve their persecution by the Nazis because they rejected Christ, this is depressing. Firstly, Luke 19 was clearly written for people in Roman antiquity, and we know that Jerusalem was besieged. You can read about it from various Roman historians. Next, he is using numerology without saying that he's using numerology. He calls it numerics or something, but arose by any other name. But my last response on this point, one of the reasons this argument is bad is it ignores the history of what actually happened. Because Jews were forced into ghettos in Poland from 1939, not simply from 1941. So even on that aspect, Mitch's argument falls over. But lastly... This is a classic example of victim-blaming. He's basically saying that the reason that the Jews were forced into ghettos by the Nazis in Poland in 1941-1944 is because they rejected Christ as the fulfilment of prophecy and as Lord and Saviour. This is classic victim-blaming. But it also contradicts the Bible. In multiple places, it says that children should not die for the sins of their fathers. But now, all of a sudden, God has no problem punishing Jews in the 1900s for the sins they had no say over back in 30-something AD? This is not only bad, but it borders on offensive. If you take your King James Bible, don't try it with ESV, don't try it with the NIV, don't try it with the New King James, don't try it with the EBRV, including the HIV, don't try it with any of them. One book, not the Greek, not the Hebrew, not the Aramaic, not the Syriac, not the Latin, not any other language, but a language of all the Gentile languages that's the closest to Hebrew of any language in the world. This is a facepalm. They don't even write in the same direction. And anyone who knows English will know that English is derived from Greek, Latin, and the Anglo-Saxon culture. If you can find any Hebrew in there... There we go. As the moderator, it is uh, my job as well, not only to keep time and such as that, but to keep these fellows I said on task. 
Now, I'll be honest with you. The question that I asked both these fellas didn't get answered by either one of these fellas. I asked them, which Bible on the market today are the words of God or closest to the words of God? So I'm, I'm going to ask both of them right here and I want them to give me a straight answer. Correct. No one answered the question. They were too busy attacking each other over which circle needs jerking more. Though I do feel Nathan's answer is more reasoned. This question. Which line of manuscripts are the most trustworthy and accurate? Speaking of manuscripts where uh, all versions come from, whether it's the King James Bible or any other, any other version of the Bible. Which line of manuscripts are the most trustworthy and accurate? Uh, the Alexandrian Egyptian texts or the Antiochian and Syrian text. This particular topic, I don't have an answer for. I'm not familiar with the differences between the Alexandrian or the Syrian Antioch text. Um, I don't know the historical context behind them. So I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this, uh, on this particular topic. But it does prove point one above. Again, no one owns Christianity. It's a collection of beliefs based around texts. You put your beliefs into texts, those texts get spread around, and hey presto, your little subsect of religion takes off, and eventually, with enough time, you become your own denomination. Biblical hermeneutics, there's some laws that apply to Bible study that cannot be refuted. Uh, one of the laws in biblical hermeneutics, along with you never take an incomplete statement uh, over uh, a complete statement, and a text without a context is a pretext. You see, the King James translators translate according to context. They did not translate uniformly Greek and Hebrew words. They translated according to context. On hermeneutics... Sure, you can have laws, but wouldn't it just be so much easier if God just came down to tell us what he actually really meant? I mean, humans stuffed up the Garden of Eden after merely a few days on the word of a talking snake. But now, all of a sudden, humans are capable of preserving a timeless and inerrant word for thousands upon thousands of years? And to me, hermeneutics is really glorified opinion, the same as doctrine. So sure, you can study the Bible as a text, but then extrapolating and saying that that text and the way that you're reading it is the inerrant and divine word of a deity who will send you to hell for not believing it? That is a bridge too far. Disciples were persecuted in Jerusalem. God told them to go out and they wouldn't go out. They liked safety in numbers. So God had to send persecution. Oh boy. Face palm. He did the same thing in your Baptist history uh, out of Sandy Creek. 
with Shubal Stearns and the 600 people that was in that church. He sent persecution for Governor Tryon here in the state of North Carolina to cause the Baptists to have to, to, uh, to, have to support Anglican baby sprinklers. And the Baptist said, we won't do it. So persecution came. Benjamin Merrill uh, uh, was hung at his plantation up here in Jersey, Jersey Baptist Church up in... Baptists always been persecuted. The man was just a Baptist wanting to serve God. He didn't want his money to go to support baby sprinklers. I don't either. Is this kind of cross-faith persecution and malignment that makes me think that even if God existed... He either doesn't care who mistranslates his word, or he simply doesn't care who dies, as long as his word is promoted. What we actually are as believers in this age, we're Philadelphian church uh, uh, Christians in the Laodicean church age. And but it's rough. But if you think it's rough, wait till they start burning us at the stake. Why do they start forcing us to take a vaccine? Why do they tell you you're not going to receive your social security check if you don't take the vaccine? Or you can't visit the hospital, you can't go in the hospital. Folks, it's, we're bearing down to it. When that time comes, you better have a book that you can depend on. Not in somebody's idea and opinion about that book. But what thus saith the word of the Lord, you better have it. And this book you got came from Antioch, Syria. Amen. Antioch, Syria, come through the Eastern Church, the Greek Church, had nothing to do with Rome. That's why the King James translator said, lest we be traduced by popish persons at home or abroad who malign us because we are poor instruments to be God's truth to yet be more and more known unto the people, unless we be maligned by self-conceited brethren who run their own ways and give a liking unto nothing which is framed by themselves and hammered on their anvil. The King James translators knew if you mess with Rome, they'd burn you. King James Version onlyism. Never miss an opportunity to bash the Catholics. You mess with the Puritans, they'll burn you. You better stay right here and stay with God, and that's exactly what they did. Yes, they consulted Spanish, and they consulted Hebrew, and Cal Chaldaic, and, they, and, they, and, they, and Italian, and Latin, and all. They had access to all of those manuscripts that many of them were passed into the Bodleian Library. They cannot be perused even with white gloves. And these men today that said they have better manuscripts than the King James Bible, they're lying! Mitch Knupp's Donald Trump moment. Playing to the crowd. Playing fast and loose with the truth not trying to win the debate on merit, but on throwing out as many ad hominems as possible. Law of first mention, which by the way is not taken very seriously as a, as a principle of hermeneutics. And I want to, I want to show this. Uh, do we have a perfect Bible? Well, the, the very first mention of perfect in the King James Version is, uh, by the way, this is translated dozens and dozens and dozens of different ways you can Pick which one you want it to mean. But in the very first mention of perfect in the English, if we're going to carry this law, as he said, out, is Genesis 6-9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just and a perfect, and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Was Noah perfect? 
The same way you're claiming the King James Version is perfect, without error, without sin, absolutely he was not. He was depraved, as we see later in his life. He needed grace, and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He's right. This is a field where almost everyone points one finger and has four fingers pointing back. The scholars who agree with us are brilliant, but the scholars who disagree are corrupted communist reprobates. There's no biblical proof for re-inspiration. There's also no need for re-inspiration. God has preserved his word through copies of copies of the originals. He can preserve it any way he wants to. Then why are there thousands upon thousands of differences between the manuscripts? King James was reformed, raised Presbyterian, mixed with high church Anglican, anti-separatist, anti-Puritan. All the translators were Calvinistic, reformed. They were Protestants who belonged to the Anglican church. And then he turns and he belittles all these other men after he says you can't belittle King James, but he can belittle anybody else he wants to. And again, Mitch complains one dead man is maligned, yet he himself maligns cemeteries of dead men. And this is one of the problems of anchoring your faith on one particular translation, is that it does make you pig-headed. It does make you inflammatory towards people of other denominations or beliefs. The amount of times that Mitch has maligned or, you know, dismissed people of other faiths, people of other political beliefs, people of other doctrines. And again, it goes back to the fact that there is no central authority in Christianity. You can be an inflammatory, antagonistic jerk and still claim that God loves you and you're his chosen child. On the issue of Calvinism and doctrinal purity, Numerous battles and wars have been waged because one branch of Christianity hated another branch of Christianity. And people say, well, it's not Calvinism, it's the doctrines of grace. Really? John Calvin said it pleased God for the decree of reprobation that if a baby should die and not be elect, that that baby should burn in hell forever. Yep. This is why atheists hate discussing challenging concepts with Calvinists. They are so stuck in their theology that they can't see outside their bubble. And even other Christians hate Calvinists. But to me, there's a certain part of Calvinism that is theologically correct. For example, the Westboro Baptist Church. Yes, The Westboro Baptist Church are full-on in-your-face jerks, but I also think that they are quite theologically correct. If you're sitting here this morning, since it went over to Calvinism, when you're sitting here this morning and you're saying that Jesus Christ only shed enough blood for the elect and then reprobated the rest of the world, then you're saying that Jesus Christ is responsible personally for the damnation of everybody he didn't shed blood for. Now, if you want to hang that around your neck and stand before Jesus Christ, help yourself, I don't. This reminds me of the old joke about Jesus calling from Utah. 
The Pope is sitting in his office and his secretary runs in. Your Holiness, Your Holiness, I've got good news and bad news. The Pope responds, what's the good news? The good news is that Jesus Christ is on the phone and wants to talk to you. Then the Pope responds, well, if Jesus is on the phone and wants to talk to me, what could possibly be the bad news? His secretary responds, he's calling from Utah. And about Mitch being so judgmental, what if it turns out that Calvinism is the one true faith, or that the scriptures are wrong, or that God is going to kick out all the KJV-only people? That's your prerogative, but all I want you to see is this book's the word of God, and God preserved it like he said he would. I don't remember God saying he was going to make one specific version that had to be followed by everyone and then get his followers to be pig-headed and doctrinally smug about it. King James was completely in charge, as was Queen Mary. The monarchy is the middle ground and he ruled the Church of England. That's problematic. Nobody here wants a church state, a state church. Nobody wants that. Correct. Nobody wants dominionism. Well, except maybe the IFB movement. But having said that, numerous countries have official faiths or churches, not least of all England. Australia is run by the Queen, who literally has her own church. And we do pretty well. But Nathan is entirely correct when he says that King James Version onlyism is legalism. Does King James onlyism meet the criteria of a historic Orthodox Bible doctrine? It does not. If you hold that as a preference, praise God, you've got a great translation. But don't enforce those views on other people and don't claim that it's an extra biblical don't claim it's a Bible doctrine when it's an extra biblical doctrine. The clearest example of this is questioning someone's salvation over the issue of the King James Version. And Mitch clearly claims that he does not believe you can be saved through other versions. The corrupt seed. His co-host tried to reel him in on that when they got there, but I've heard too many sermons where he absolutely said, I don't care what the rest of y'all think, I have a hard time believing that anybody can be saved through any other version, which is a corrupt seed, and I'm sure he would affirm that today. This is legalism, and please listen to me and let me explain this. I've told you, I'm told all the time that separatist groups are not legalistic because they don't teach that you're saved by your works, but this is clear evidence that you say people are saved by grace through faith, but if they don't conform to your extra-biblical standards, King James onlyism, or your man-made standards of King James onlyism, their salvation is questioned. This is the epitome of legalism. So here ends my response to the debate between Mitch Knupp and Nathan Cravat about the King James Version only Bible and King James Version onlyism. In the next episode, I will respond to points made in the Q&A that followed the debate. Until next time, look after yourselves.
thank you for listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Have a great day. Have a great week. See you next time.